one thing about setbacks is it's never a setback if you learn from it. And, and that's the kind of real thing you need to kind of keep in your mind about when you get it in a kickback, because you're going to keep back everywhere you do and everywhere you walk. Welcome to another episode of Spotlight with Chris Stevenson, the CEO of Enviracom. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at some really interesting setbacks from getting on a graduate scheme to that not working out, to becoming a lorry driver, but ultimately going on a journey of success to being a chief executive. First of all, just a little bit of an intro as to who you are, what you're currently doing. Um, okay. Uh, Chris Stevenson, I'm CEO of Enviracom. Enviracom is the largest dedicated uh, reuse and recycling uh, business for e-waste. Um, and we'll recycle, for instance, a fridge every 42 seconds. Uh, we sell thousands of reuse white goods appliances out into Europe. Because strangely in Europe, buying a second-hand reuse item is a bit like buying a second-hand car. It's, it's normal. In the UK, it hasn't quite got that far, I suspect. Uh, the whole view on society is changing and, uh, and the environment, so uh, things will change that way. But, uh, and it is true, the environment is, is becoming centre stage uh, and, and therefore uh, recycling, reuse, which is, which is, if you think about it, a very new industry. It's not like retail, it's not like the, the railways that have been out there forever. Recycling actually is quite a new sort of concept. And as a result of that, um, it's still in its infancy and there's still, you know, crap pots going along the way, there's crooks running it another way because they can get around all the regulations and yeah. offer a cheap price, etc. But there are a lot of good, honest companies that are making headway in it. And as the, the, comes higher on the political agenda, uh, recycling and reuse will become uh, a recognised industry that uh, people won't want, want to join and won't want to be part of. I would imagine, like, it's going to be... I would imagine that <clears throat> you said it in right, recycling to its infancy, which makes complete sense. Yeah, obviously, yeah. Well, when I started, you used to throw everything away. Like everything away, yeah. The dustpan just took absolutely everything. You just, it was, you know, once you run out, you just park it up and scrap it and off you went. You to get something else. We were in a consumer society, weren't we? Yeah. Well, we still are, but it's, it is changing yeah. quite quickly. You can see on our, I live on a new build estate and um, out, Cochrane, out the back of Cockgrave, and we've got quite an active local estate Facebook page. Seems to get shit done. It's pretty good. Um, and we managed to get the council to put in um, two recycling centres on the estate for the estate because there's nowhere to put it. There was like uh, clothes to just put it in the grain bin and just pretend that it's. And, and you'll find that particularly with electrical appliances, which are full of toxins and all sorts of nasty things. People throw it into the, into the oh, we call it black bin, but the grey bin, black bin, yeah. whatever. Uh, and, and then it goes into the land waste, which is terrible. But the councils don't tend to specifically pick up e-waste. Do you think that we'll have, like, in the future, huge sort of recycling facilities where, like, something comes out, it goes in at one end, and it almost comes out as like I don't know, we quite like this, but like tin, aluminium, steel, certain plastic. You, you, that's stripped down. So, so when you put a fridge in, it literally goes in this conveyor that goes up. It is then totally destroyed, and out comes up. You get the steel comes here, stainless steel here, copper here, aluminium here, plastic here. The PUR, which is the, the foam that insulates it, comes out here. That's what the machine does. I mean, there are millions and millions of pounds worth of, of, of kits, but that's exactly what happens. Right. So, so then, but they're getting clever and clever. Yeah. So then it's the sort of the copper, the steel, and then that's recycled 
So that's sold to breweries? Absolutely, yes, absolutely, yeah, yeah, because copper, copper's copper's copper. So as long as it's, it's, it's uh, not with any contaminants in it, it's as good as the, the raw stuff they're digging out of the ground. And it makes much more sense. And the manufacturers you'll find, will be st you'll see now when you're buying your Dell printer or your Dell uh, computer, it'll say it's, it contains so much recycled plastic or so much recycled material in it. That will start to accelerate because people like you will say, I, I don't want to buy something that's yeah. just all raw materials. I'd like to have some recycled something in it. Very interesting career in the sense well, you've gone on a very unusual swoop to where you are. So um, you've had loads of setbacks, that's obvious from, 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 from reading, your, reading your blog. But um, it'd be interesting for, is to for you to tell us about the setback and how you overcome that and what that's meant for you today. Well, I, I think it's one thing about setbacks is it's never a setback if you learn from it. And, and that's the kind of real thing you need to kind of keep in your mind about when you get it and kick back. Because you're going to kick back everywhere you do and everywhere you walk. Um, I guess the worst one I ever had, and that was because I was new to, to, to the world, to management, etc., was when I first became assistant manager at uh, BRS Barnsley. Uh, the current the depot manager wanted his engineer to become the assistant manager. I was sort of put in as a trainee from above and was resented. And, and it was about eight or nine months of, frankly, unpleasant environment. Um, had I been me now, I could have dealt with it, no problem at all. But as a 21-year-old, it, it was... I, I didn't. I didn't deal with it very well either, and so uh, that was blamed to me. Uh, and I went back, and they took me out and put me back into uh, Durham Depot, and then I left and, and joined TNT as a driver uh, because I'd learned how to drive and driving for my dad after I left university. And it was kind of the <clears throat> thing to do to go back to square one because at that stage I thought I can't manage people. I clearly am not not cut out for this management lark. It isn't me. Um, or it is me, it's my failure. Uh, but, you know, sitting back in the cab, that's one thing driving does for you. You are hours of mindless time to, to think about things because you have nothing else to do because it's all automatic driving. Um, it, I start going back through things and thinking, you know, perhaps I wasn't at fault, perhaps I can do this. Uh, and TNT at that stage was a really fast growing company. So, you know, once you showed some dedication, some hard work and some keenness to get on, they were more than happy to progress with you. So I, I went step by step uh, up through the career ladder and eventually became Divisional Managing Director of one of their most successful uh, divisions. And it was slow to start with. Yeah. So I spent nine months driving. I became a, a, a supervisor. It was a year and a half for doing that. He was then an operations manager. I was two years on that. I then became a depot manager. It was it, it, what didn't happen overnight. You know, this is... You have to build up your, your credibility, your career. You have to prove that you're willing to go the extra mile uh, and, and dedicate yourself to some extent to, to improving. Okay, so you start, so you swapped into uh, becoming a driver and then you ended up as the regional MD. Well, divisional MD. Divisional MD. Um, so how? What helped you with that? Like, uh, I, I guess... Um, trying to be the best at whatever I was doing. So if somebody told me to sweep the, the warehouse floor, I'd try and sweep it as, as best you could do it. If somebody told me that to supervise a, a set of guys, we would be the most efficient shift that they had in that in that three shifts that were running, for instance. Um, when I became the operations manager, they had stats for depots, so TNT had 20, 30 depots. 
uh, and they had league tables about operational excellence and which was better. It, you know, I would try and get, get landed a, a really rubbish depot and pull it up from being the worst to the best. Uh, and and if, if, in operationally. So it was that kind of driven, I'm very, very driven to, to, to get things, to make things better. You know, one of my mantras is progress, not, not, not perfection. Yeah. Just you know, keep chipping away, improving, improving, improving. And as you get better and better and better, um, and more and more experience, the whole situation gets better. Uh, so um, I think, uh, I, you know, look, I remember uh, very early days in my club racing days, I'm flat out around the corner, going as fast as I think seemingly possible. And the championship leader came past me. He looked round, tapped the back of the seat to say, "Follow me." What well, you're having a laugh? I'm going as fast as I can go. Two corners later, he's disappeared. Five years later, I've moved on. I've gone to European championships because I've always wanted to get better and better. And I'm I go to do a club race because it was a track we were going to go later on to. And I happen to be in the same class as this guy. He's still the club champion five years again, except this time I caught him up. I went round the corner, I looked back and I went, and you know, he never, he never came past me, he never caught me and I, you know, I didn't bother looking behind, but I you know, left him in my smoke. And that's because I got better and better. Instead of sticking where I am and being like a success that he'd done, just keep trying. Go on. So when you move up to national championships, the guys around there are bloody quick, but you get quicker. Then you will go to European. Those guys are even faster, but and you're right at the back again. But just by gradually, just determination and just trying to improve, you get quicker. And then suddenly, say if you go all the way back to club racing, you, you're super fast. You talked about making yourself known as well. Like in a big, fast-moving company, you have to sort of take responsibility not for your own self-publication, but well, no, you. And it's a great point because I didn't do that. I thought my success be it making the best, most profit, being the most efficient depot, whatever it was, it is enough. But I'm afraid in big corporate organisations, it's not. You you need to make sure that your manager knows how good you are. You equally need to make sure his manager knows how good you are. And only by doing that, well, that's one of the ways that helps you move on in, in corporate life. And it's an important lesson to learn for those people starting in big corporations. It's not, you have to do really well. Of course you do, and you should do. But equally, you need to make sure that other people know that you're doing a really good job, that you're very keen. Because, because they've got lots of other distractions and they might not notice it. And, and equally, you need to make sure that the manager beyond him is so that he doesn't keep you there. I have found that in my career that the guy who I was working for, well, he didn't want me to move on because he was I was making him look really good. Yeah. So, you know, he, he was yeah. kind of, oh, no, you're no good. But if you manage to make sure... He's managed, he's managed, oh, hang on a second, he's really good, I could do with him being here. And that's how you help yourself move on. And it's important in big corporates, if you're working in a business that has a bit, has one owner and, and it's a small bit, that, that doesn't figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have obviously been inspired throughout your career. Any notable inspirations along the way? I don't think so. I don't think I've ever aspired to be... Nelson Mandela or anything like that at all. Um, I, I have read a lot about leadership <clears throat> because I'm interested in it. Uh, I'm particularly interested in, in, in uh, generals and, and admirals and people like that because the, so you, what, whilst, whilst, whilst my management, unless it's to do with health and safety, doesn't, doesn't, nobody gets killed. Yeah. 
that is their role in life. Therefore, their decisions are really critical because people die when they make the wrong decisions. And, and a couple of the, you know, you think about all the different how it's progressed, warfare's progressed, not just the mechanics of it, but also the management of it. Um, and I admire like Nelson and, and Napoleon because uh, they changed how they changed it fundamentally, so that. Uh, there wasn't one guy in charge, and then everyone went in en masse, and it all got a bit of a mess, and it was the biggest army won normally. They actually made sure that their captains and generals knew what the strategy of the day's strategy was, what the goal was, what was what Napoleon wanted to happen in it. And then once he got into the fog of war, his generals knew what strategically they needed to do and they could make decisions tactically without going back to him because he couldn't do and they won battles loads of times because of that fleet of foot because they were allowed to make decisions on their own basis but they always made that decision with what Napoleon had said was the object in the background and, and, and Nelson did exactly the same thing and it's that kind of uh, you need to empower people once you get to a certain size organisation, you need to empower people to make real decisions. But as the leader, you want to... All decisions are good decisions, usually, but you want to be heading in one direction. So if a decision takes you off this way, it's not so good for the whole overall business. So it, it, it's really important that you make sure that all your team of managers know where the business wants to be going. They can then make individual really good decisions tactically that take you further forward, probably a lot further forward than done if you make every single decision. And that's the mistake a lot of leaders make. They want to make every single decision. If you micromanage or even make, try and make every decision, you'll, you'll make a mess of things. I, Let people make decisions, but, but within a structure that yeah, you've created. Yeah. So somebody just starting out a career um, that's got a focus on wanting to make this make their career a success and sort of aspire to be in a senior leader, leadership position. I mean, from your experience, what what's, what piece of advice would you give someone that's starting out today that wants to end up where you are? Uh, I think you need to find something that, uh, for want of a better can float your boat, that appeals to your soul. Because uh, if you don't, it'll just be a job. And if it's just a job, it's very difficult to put a lot of dedication and enthusiasm into it. I think the other thing is, uh, is, is treat uh, every setback as, as, a, as, a, as a positive as much as you can be. And, and whilst these sound like glib words that you can read in any kind of management book, they are true. Yeah. Uh, and, 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 you know, that is just how it is. Um, I, think, uh, I think my other advice to people is leadership's not for everybody. I, I, in fact, it's probably not for most people. So just check it's something that you actually enjoy doing because if you don't enjoy doing it it's going to become a real struggle for you um, some people get a real buzz out of leading and, and other people don't it, um, it's like a lot of things you have a natural aptitude but i say to people some people get maths really easy the, the truth is everybody can do maths it, it's a fairly logical thing it, it's but some people have a better aptitude than it than others and therefore if you want to become a maths professor, I'd suggest you have a decent aptitude to it as well as once you wanted to become a maths professor. And I'd say that about leadership. If you want to become a leader, you need to have some kind of aptitude for it. Um, what advice I would give to a future leader? I think um, you have got to uh, think about um, what you're wanting to achieve 
out of life and what you want to uh, and what you want to achieve. Um, I think it, it, we've talked about this before, but you will get setbacks, you will get knockbacks. You need to treat those as positives. Uh, you will. Um, you need to make sure that whatever you're, you're wanting to do is, is something that works for you. Um, I, guess, uh, I guess my advice to, to them is you must have empathy with people. You must want people to, uh, to come along and uh, sort of sometimes you have to use reverse psychology on people so that, so that they actually think it's their idea that they thought of and that they want to get to, to do, whereas in reality it's perhaps something that you you know you ought to have suggested. I was it just a long thing to words to say. Sublimely so seed, yeah. Hopefully so. Yeah. Um, and eventually, actually, you as a team actually start to to to, to realise it's it's the it's the right way to go. Uh, and I think that's what's uh, what I think I would say to to any future to leader. Interesting that you use the empathy as an example. I was reading something today about empathy, and uh, it was said that we're all born with equal measures of empathy. It's something that you're born with, but as you progress in life, it's something you either suppress or learn to unlock more. Uh, yeah, I don't know whether that's true or not, but um, I, I think um, you know when I employ a manager, I always try and employ a manager who's got who is who, not going to say to me, "I'm going to dedicate my life to the to the business." I don't want you to do that. I want, you go, if you want to go and play golf. So we're going to play golf. But if you want to go and play golf or fish or something, great. Have a have, oh, have the, look at look with your family. Have another hobby. Have another interest. Because if you've got that interest, you you then can chat to your the people above you and below you. You can have sort of breadth of character. Uh, if you come too narrow, um, you become fairly uninteresting. Now, if you want to become a microbiologist or something, that's probably a great thing to be very narrow and dedicated. But if you want to become a manager and leader. You just have to be a bit more broader, a bit more appealing to, to, to everybody so that uh, you bring people along with you. Uh, and when you're in big corporates, it's the people above you bring along as well as the people below you. Uh, if you finally get to the top, then you, you're bringing everybody along with you. Uh, and, and that's important because people want to come to need, need to and want to come to work. I think, you know, I used to, my father, I used to sort of ask the guys who worked for him, uh, you know, what was, his, what was he like? And they always used to say, he was hard but fair. And the hard bit is because people do need, to, a lot of people come to work want to know what they will need to do. They don't want to have to make the decision of what they want to do. They actually want to be told what they need to be doing. But it has to be done fairly and reasonably. You can't yell and shout at people and expect them to, to work for you. It doesn't work that way. But equally, they do need to know, they need to know the boundaries. They need to know what's, what things is, they've done a good job and what isn't such a good job. I think uh, if, in all seriousness, I wanted to advise somebody uh, a lot younger. Um, I, I think it's all I'm sort of repeating what I've said before, which is career-wise, you really need to find something that that, you, that appeals to you want to do. Now, that isn't good. You hear people say, oh, I, 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 you know, cricket, oh, it's, it, I, it's what I've always wanted to do. I'm, I'm so lucky to be paid to do the thing I love. They're pretty rare species of people. And if you try and to do that, you will end up disappointed in life. But there are lots and lots of work things that are great fun. Like you say, you know, you clearly enjoy what you do because you, you smile about when you talk about it. Yeah. And, 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 and that's a, a great thing, isn't it? And if you can do that, you spend a long time at work, 
So it's a good thing that you actually do something that at least you get some form of pleasure from, be that interacting with the people you're there, be that the subject of whatever it is you're doing, whatever that happens to be. So I think my advice to myself would be um, try and do something that you, you get a lot of uh, enjoyment from. Um, and I've been lucky. Uh, the things I do, uh, be that you know, with logistics, is, is all about big warehouses and, and lorries and all the rest of it. I used to love doing that. It was great fun. The environment's a great topic and, and very enjoyable to do. Uh, but the great thing I love doing is managing people and, and managing uh, a, a business. So um, try and find something that uh, really floats your boat that you enjoy doing if you can do. If not, find something that, that uh, at least gives you some satisfaction at the end of the week. You can say, that's been a good week, I've enjoyed it. Or alternatively, sometimes, you know, this week hasn't been so good for Enviricom. You know, I sit and think, how can I make it better because this hasn't quite worked out and it just gives you that little spur to try yeah, it next, yeah. next week. Yeah, it's interesting. I think that if I thought about my, what I would tell myself, if I was my TO self, I'd tell myself, you're going to get better at chasing girls in your 20s, so don't waste all the time doing it now because you're rubbish at it, uh, which is true. And that, to enjoy university and pick the course that you wanted to study because you enjoyed it, not the one that you thought was going to get you the best job, which meant you had to go back to uni again because you hated it. <laughs> yes, and, 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 and I think that's really true, but you probably end up doing quite the opposite. But yeah. um, yes, now in, uh, look, we're all better for our experiences, uh, good or bad. Uh, and I think you just need to take the positives out of the bad ones and, and enjoy the good ones. Uh, I guess you need to know whether you're genuinely lost or whether you've just sort of uh, can't find yourself. So uh, are you in the middle of a desert and you don't know which way to go or are you just down some street and you don't quite recognise it but actually if you walk away further down you'd see where you're going. So I think if you're just temporarily at, at a loss then just knuckle down and keep going. I think uh, if you are genuinely lost in what you are doing, you sort of have to do two things. You need to sort of evaluate um, logically and emotionally and split the two up and just check that maybe everybody else is lost in that organisation. Maybe the whole business is kind of not going the right way. So so it isn't you, it's, it's the business. And again, emotionally, just to see whether, um, make sure that... Um, you don't take all the blame for yourself, that, that it isn't all down to you that is the issue, perhaps it's other people's issues. So um, I think if, you, if you've done all that and you're generally lost, then maybe it's time to back back out uh, a bit like I did and go back to driving and then restart again and, and move forward. If you're young enough, that's, a, that's a, probably not a bad solution. Uh, and look to um, rebuilding your career back rebuilding back from where you were happy and weren't lost and, and maybe setting off in that direction rather than going up in this direction that obviously led to a dead end where you found that you weren't weren't happy. I said to you that off camera about when I had some pay cut. Yeah. I, I, that was that crossroads that I had at that point. It was kind of like, this job is quite unsustainable, the hours, yet the money is ridiculous. And then like you looked at what the other jobs were yeah, it's, it's basically a £36,000 pay cut. But that was the right decision at that point because it gave me the opportunity to go forward, whereas I wasn't, the job that I was in, I was, it wasn't my ceiling, 
but the sustainability element of it was whether I was the next manager grade up, director, it was still 16 hour days where required. Yeah. Um, I think it was the, the illusion you were saying about the art of war. Uh, sometimes if you're in a battle and you're not going anywhere and, you're, and it's starting to creep back towards you, instead of just standing and saying every man will die and all the rest of it, retreat back to your yeah. castle, regroup, yeah. work it all out and then go back out again. And it's true psychologically as well as it is physically. The craziest thing about that was, was that I took, I was really proud of a job because I was young and it was, I earned the most money I've ever all that rubbish that comes along with that. And then I, um, I quit the job, which my family were delighted about. <laughs> I got this job at Trent Bridge and we had a massive party at, Christ at Christmas time and everyone was really proud of me and I got this job at Trent Bridge. I'd left by May. I'd left by May. I did five months. I was like, this isn't for me. The yeah. superbikes and MotoGP thing came along. I moved into that. Um, I was like, wow, this is this is more me. Um, which the season is seasonal. Yeah. So you have October to March. Last race is Port Mal. No race till March. You're sitting there quickly, sitting there like, there's not a lot to do for the next five months which leads your mind at that time to look for some other things so that's sound advice that is like sometimes taking a step back and going back to your happy place allows you to go on and be what you want to be and I think age it's easy to do that when you're younger but yep. I don't think there's any limits on no. it I think you can I think if you listen to Radio 4 you hear people who have changed their careers yeah you do all the time and, yeah, and yeah. it sounds quite interesting and, and they sound very happy with it so look you know yeah, why not yeah and you sometimes think to yourself when you hear them you're like well that person was brave uh, good good for them though yes. I mean I actually generally think that we should have there should be some form of tax for the environment and it's got to come in at some point and no one's going to like it well, there's going to be some shift in what we're doing. Uh, so, so, so technically, there's sort of there already is. So, it's, it's, it's the polluter plays is, is the law from the EU, which I know we've left, but it's still the same thing. Um, and, and for polluter, they that's, that's the manufacturer or importer. So, when you when you bring goods into uh, electronic equipment into the UK as a producer or as a retailer, um, you have to pay for a certain percentage of that tonnage. Then you have to pay for it to be recycled. Obviously, not that kit because it's brand new, yeah, but yeah. the stuff that's Previous, coming out. Yeah. So when the when the councils are collecting, you know, fridges, for instance, um, um, Bosch would will have to pay uh, to have them recycled, and they put, and they pay a, a, a fee in, into a, a scheme, and the scheme then pays the recycler bus. So they sort of are paying. Okay. Yeah. But but my point has always been the trouble is that is that the the producer has no uh, control over who's spending that money. Um, and I think a better scheme, will, and it doesn't make the public aware of it, so the, what really ought to be, ought to be a tax on that washing machine. And if it's a particularly you know, inefficient one, um, a Turkish brand, for instance, then there should be a bigger tax on it. And if it's a German manufacturer that's much more efficient, it should be a lesser tax. And then you can make the decision if you want to buy a slightly cheaper one, but it's more energy inefficient, you pay a bigger tax on it, and that way people become much more responsible about what they're buying. And again, if it was if it was a reuse you were buying, you wouldn't have to pay a tax on it because it's already been paid. Therefore, it would be cheaper. Uh, and just like there shouldn't be VAT on it, you only buy your second-hand car, you don't pay VAT on it. You buy a second-hand fridge, you pay, pay VAT on it. Oh, that's all wrong. Yeah. Why should you be paying VAT twice? 
Somebody's already paid about on that particular item. Um, so, and, and in terms of the future for Envirocom, I think it's really good. We know we, we should be, e-waste is the largest, it's the fastest growing waste stream in the world. Uh, and uh, as a reuse and recycler in e-waste, we should be the vanguard uh, of, of the increase in, in recycling that should be occurring. Uh, so I think we're very well set for the future. Um, and, uh, and it's an interesting time in the industry because... Uh, the whole um, environmental uh, regulations are changing. Uh, they're getting much tighter, which is a good thing. Um, and so it's exciting times ahead, I think, in, in the recycling industry as a whole, you know, be that water or plastic, which of course, you know, David Atter really very well publicised, or be in, in e-waste, which again, is, uh, uh, contains a lot of in, uh, very rare uh, metals and materials and also um, it's usually toxic if you put it into landfill, which is where it used to be going. So that completes this episode of Spotlight With. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe and we'll see you really soon for some more episodes.